Picture this. You are seeing Janine in your primary care office, a 72-year-old woman with hypertension who is here for a routine follow-up visit. Her physical exam is unremarkable, and her blood pressure is 131 over 78 millimeters of mercury. When you ask Janine how her blood pressure has been at home, she says, Well, I was watching the news a few days ago, and the doctor said that everyone's blood pressure should be 120 over 80. Usually, when I measure mine, it's 122 over 75 or so. But the other day, I measured it after carrying some heavy bags of soil in the garden, and it was 145 over 92. Should I be worried? Should Janine be worried? Is this fluctuation in blood pressure considered normal? By what mechanisms does the body control blood pressure? Welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Laurel Toft, bringing cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Explain why blood pressure regulation is important and describe how blood pressure is measured. 2. Explain how systemic vascular resistance and cardiac output affect blood pressure. And 3. Explain how the autonomic nervous system and the renal and cardiovascular systems integrate to regulate blood pressure. Part 1. Why is blood pressure regulation important? Blood pressure, or BP, regulation is critical. If the blood pressure is too low, which we call hypotension, the organs are not perfused with blood. Patients may become lightheaded and then pass out, which we call syncope. Hypotension can also lead to kidney failure, ischemic toes, and eventually shock and cell death. On the other hand, when blood pressure is too high, called hypertension, there is an increased risk for heart attack, stroke, and kidney failure. The body maintains a normal BP through an intricate balance of neural, hormonal, and physical pathways. In another brick called Hemodynamics Blood Pressure, you can learn about the physical properties of the blood vessel wall, for example, compliance and thickness, that play a role in blood pressure maintenance. Here, we will focus on how blood pressure is controlled on a minute-to-minute basis. Part 2. Measuring Blood Pressure We measure arterial blood pressure in millimeters of mercury by using a stethoscope and a sphygmomanometer. Try saying that 10 times fast. We record blood pressure as two numeric values, systolic blood pressure, the upper value, over diastolic blood pressure, the lower value. The systolic blood pressure reflects the maximum pressure generated by the left ventricle during systole, when the heart contracts and while the aortic valve is open. At this time, the intraventricular pressure equals the aortic and arterial pressure. This pressure is normally about 120 millimeters of mercury. Now, when you are using the stethoscope on the antecubital fossa to measure the BP, the systolic pressure corresponds to when you first hear pulsations as you lower the pressure on the cuff. Diastolic BP is the arterial pressure during diastole, when the heart relaxes and the aortic valve is closed. The arterial pressure does not drop to zero between heartbeats because the elastic arteries are able to recoil, reducing the vessel diameter during diastole and maintaining the arterial pressure at about 80 millimeters of mercury. When you're listening with the stethoscope, the diastolic blood pressure is the pressure when the pulsations become inaudible. A third number can be used to represent BP, and it's called the MAP, or mean arterial pressure. 
This is calculated as two-thirds of the diastolic pressure plus one-third of the systolic pressure to reflect that more time of the cardiac cycle is spent in diastole compared to systole. This is literally the average or mean pressure that the organs actually see, and it's what determines organ perfusion. Let's pause to see if you got that. What are the systolic and diastolic blood pressures? The systolic blood pressure is the arterial blood pressure during heart contraction, and the diastolic blood pressure is the arterial blood pressure during heart relaxation. Part three, what are the primary factors that regulate blood pressure? There are several factors that determine our baseline BP, including things like gravity, the viscosity of blood, and the elastic recoil of the arteries. So why would the body need to regulate the blood pressure? Wouldn't it just stay constant? Well, you can imagine situations where blood pressure actually needs to change in order to regulate blood flow. For example, simple challenges like standing up from a chair with the accompanying change in gravitational pressure. And then there are much bigger problems like hemorrhage or blood vessels dilating during an allergic reaction called anaphylaxis. Two main factors work together to regulate the BP in these situations, systemic vascular resistance and cardiac output. Each of these factors is under the integrated control of the body's physiologic systems, as we will discuss in detail in the next section. Let's look at each of these two factors in more detail. First up, systemic vascular resistance, or SVR. SVR is the resistance to blood flow by all the systemic vessels. You can think of SVR as a measure of how contracted or dilated the blood vessels are. You'll hear physiologists use the term total peripheral resistance, or TPR, but clinically we use the term SVR. Now, increasing SVR makes it more difficult for blood to flow from the larger arteries to the smaller ones, and this leads to an increase in blood pressure. Decreasing SVR allows blood to flow more easily through the larger arteries, leading to a decrease in the pressure. The constricting of blood vessels, called vasoconstriction, allows the vessel to become more narrow, with a smaller luminal cross-sectional area. Vasoconstriction increases the SVR and the blood pressure. In contrast, vasodilation is the relaxation of blood vessels, which decreases the SVR and thereby lowers the blood pressure. SVR is regulated by many different factors, including autonomic nervous system input, vessel stretch called the myogenic reflex, local factors like nitric oxide, oxygen, and carbon dioxide, and finally, circulating signal molecules such as vasopressin and endothelin. All these factors help regulate the contraction and relaxation of smooth muscle within the blood vessel wall. Time for a quick clinical correlation. In septic shock, bacteria release molecules into the circulation that cause arteriolar dilation and lower the SVR, reducing the blood pressure. The heart is unable to completely compensate, and fatal hypotension and multi-organ failure sometimes result. All right, quiz time. What effect do vasoconstriction and vasodilation have on BP, respectively? Answer is, vasoconstriction increases the SVR and thus increases blood pressure, whereas vasodilation decreases the SVR and also decreases the BP. Now let's discuss cardiac output. Cardiac output, or CO, is the other main factor in blood pressure regulation. Cardiac output is the amount of blood the heart pumps per unit of time, often expressed in liters per minute. 
We can calculate this by the heart rate, number of heartbeats per minute, multiplied by the stroke volume, the amount of blood the heart pumps with each beat. Our equation is CO equals heart rate times stroke volume. The higher the heart rate or the stroke volume, the greater the cardiac output and the more blood that is pumped by the heart. With more blood comes a higher pressure, making cardiac output and therefore both heart rate and stroke volume crucial in how the body regulates blood pressure. Question time. How is the cardiac output calculated? Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. The regulation of cardiac output is related to ventricular filling, called preload, the resistance that the heart must pump against, called afterload, autonomic nervous system input, circulating humeral factors, and the pumping ability or contractility of the heart muscle itself. These are discussed in detail in another brick called contractility, preload, and afterload, but we can summarize a few of the key components of cardiac output regulation here. Preload is the stretch of the left ventricle. You can think of this as how full is the tank, except it's a stretchy elastic tank. Greater preload or filling results in optimization of the myofibril contractile mechanism, leading to a higher stroke volume and higher cardiac output. In other words, a more stretched myofibril can contract with greater velocity, leading to more effective contraction. Think of a rubber band. The more stretched it is, the stronger the force when you let go. The main determinant of preload is the blood volume. Normally, there are about 4.7 to 5.5 liters of blood in an average human body. You can just remember about 5 liters as a rough approximation. If that volume decreases, say from getting dehydrated in the desert or hemorrhaging after a car accident, there may be insufficient blood filling the cardiovascular system to maintain preload, so the cardiac output and consequently blood pressure may fall. The kidney is the main regulator of blood volume, with the major mediator being the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAAS, RAS. The RAS revs up when there is low blood volume or low blood pressure, and stimulates the kidney to reabsorb sodium from the nephron. Because water generally follows sodium into cells, sodium reabsorption leads to water reabsorption, helping to correct the low blood volume. Time for a clinical pearl. In hypovolemic shock, there is a massive loss of fluid, either from hemorrhage or from beyond intense diarrhea, like cholera. The body responds by inducing vasoconstriction, increasing cardiac contractility, and increasing heart rate. However, if these mechanisms are inadequate to compensate for the volume loss, once again, severe hypotension and organ failure can result. Next up, we have afterload. This is the pressure against which the left ventricle contracts. Think of this as the amount of weight the heart muscle is trying to lift. It is mainly determined by the systemic vascular resistance, SVR, the total resistance to flow in all the blood vessels together. Higher SVR means higher afterload, which can reduce cardiac output. As discussed previously, vasoconstriction will raise SVR and thus the blood pressure in normal patients. But note that a high SVR in the setting of a failing heart may reduce cardiac output, which in turn could lower the blood pressure. <laughs> Pathophysiology is not the same as normal physiology. This concept will become important when you learn how to manage heart failure. The desired blood pressure should be high enough to maintain organ perfusion, but not so high as to decrease cardiac output. Finally, let's discuss contractility. Contractility is the ability of the myocardial muscle to contract. 
It can be increased by nervous input from the sympathetic nerves, but often falls after a heart attack such as a myocardial infarction or other types of myocardial disease. Now, another clinical correlation before we move on. In cardiogenic shock, the cardiac output drops because of myocardial injury due to things like infarction or inflammation. Peripheral vasoconstriction and tachycardia cannot compensate adequately, leading to, once again, you remembered, severe hypotension and organ failure. Part 4. How is blood pressure regulation integrated? The regulation of blood pressure is an interplay of cardiovascular, renal, and neural physiology. All three systems work together with the goal of maintaining organ perfusion. This means that the integrated regulation is trying to keep blood pressure and circulating blood volume relatively stable. We can use some math to help us understand how the body relates the factors we've discussed, cardiac output, systemic vascular resistance, and preload. First, remember that MAP is the mean arterial pressure, and this is a simple equation. MAP equals SVR times cardiac output. Here again, MAP, mean arterial pressure, is the average arterial blood pressure. SVR, systemic vascular resistance, is the combined resistance to blood flow from all the systemic vessels. Cardiac output is determined by preload, afterload, and myocardial contractility. A MAP of less than 60 millimeters of mercury often means that organs cannot be adequately perfused. The body attempts to maintain organ perfusion, or MAP, as its primary goal. Note that when one of these factors is increased or decreased, the MAP does not necessarily have to change, and this is because the other factors can compensate. For example, if a patient develops heart failure after a heart attack due to decreased contractility and therefore decreased cardiac output, the kidney will retain fluid to increase the blood volume, the blood vessels will constrict to raise the SVR. So the MAP may not actually fall unless the heart failure becomes very severe, in which case compensations will not be able to keep up and the blood pressure will fall below normal. The overall control of blood pressure is complex and integrates the three physiologic systems that we've mentioned. You can read about each of these systems in more detail, but here's a brief review. The autonomic nervous system regulates cardiac contractility and heart rate, which together make up cardiac output. It also regulates constriction of blood vessels, the SVR, and stimulation of renal sodium retention, leading to control of blood volume and cardiac preload. These regulations are important in short-term blood pressure regulation. The kidney can independently increase sodium reabsorption and is the main determinant of blood volume and long-term blood pressure regulation. Circulating factors like vasopressin, angiotensin II, and nitric oxide can independently exert control over the cardiovascular system by constricting or dilating the blood vessels. This is control of the SVR. These factors are released both under normal physiologic conditions and in disease states. Circulating factors are important in both short and long-term blood pressure control. We'll focus on the first two of these in the next section. The circulating factors are covered in more detail in another brick called humoral regulation of blood pressure. So let's talk about the autonomic nervous system and short-term BP control. The autonomic nervous system is important in the instant second-to-second -second control of your blood pressure. How fast can this system respond? Well, consider a scenario where you accidentally submerge your hand in boiling water. Not only would it cause pain within fractions of a second, but the nerve endings in your hand would also sense the temperature and send signals to the central nervous system telling you to pull your hand away. This is how quickly a neural circuit can process information. 
a concept that holds true for regulation of blood pressure and volume as well. Neural signals modulate acute changes in pressure and volume and are ultimately responsible for trying to keep them relatively steady on a second-by-second -second basis. The hypothalamus is the processing center that coordinates the sensory inputs from the heart, blood vessels, and elsewhere with the outputs such as sympathetic and parasympathetic nerve signals to the heart, blood vessels, and kidneys. Well, how do nerves sense changes in pressure or volume? They do this by detecting change in the stretch of the arterial vasculature. Too much stretch means there's too much volume or pressure. Too little stretch means either the pressure or the volume is not enough. This is the basis of the baroreceptor reflex. Briefly, baroreceptors in the carotid artery and aorta sense changes in arterial stretch. Nerve signals are then sent to the medulla via cranial nerves 9 and 10 for processing. The autonomic sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems send signals back to the heart, kidneys, and blood vessels to make the appropriate compensatory changes to bring that blood pressure back towards normal. These signals can control each of the three determinants of blood pressure that we've discussed, cardiac output, SVR, and blood volume. And some of these efferent signals in response to low blood pressure include increasing the heart rate, which increases cardiac output, increasing contractility, which increases cardiac output, increasing renal salt and water reabsorption, which increases the blood volume, and increasing muscle tone in the arterioles, which increases SVR. All right, let's pause for a question to see if you got it. How does the autonomic nervous system detect changes in blood pressure or volume? Baroreceptors sense the stretch of arteries and then send signals to the autonomic nervous system. All right, now let's discuss the kidneys and long-term BP control. While neural mechanisms modulate the short-term changes in BP and volume, the kidneys are responsible for regulating BP changes over the long-term on the order of days to weeks. Why is this? Well, urination removes fluid from the body, fluid that is ultimately derived from circulating blood volume. You may have noticed that you urinate less when you're dehydrated because of low blood volume or blood pressure is low and you actually urinate more when the blood volume or blood pressure is high. Again, as an example, if you were dehydrated and wandering in the desert with an empty canteen, you wouldn't want to lose fluid as urine. You'd want to reabsorb the fluid to maintain your blood volume. Likewise, if you drink too much fluid, you need to urinate it out or risk having the fluid build up in your blood vessels and tissues. Here's another great clinical correlation. Patients with end-stage kidney disease have failing kidneys and reduced urine output, and they can no longer fully regulate their blood volume via urination. These patients can develop peripheral edema or swelling and high blood pressure due to the excess blood volume, and they must rely on regular dialysis treatments to remove the excess fluid. The kidneys regulate urine output by adjusting sodium and water excretion. Both are important because in most tissues, movement of salt causes the movement of water via osmotic pressure. There are many mechanisms that promote water and salt reabsorption in the kidney, including the sympathetic nervous system and the hormones aldosterone, angiotensin, and antidiuretic hormone. Likewise, there are hormones that promote salt excretion in the kidney, like the natriuretic peptides, which are released when intravascular volume is high. These mechanisms integrate with the neural and cardiovascular systems to maintain our blood pressure. All right, now a question for you before we wrap this all up. How do the kidneys help regulate long-term blood pressure? 
The kidneys regulate volume by regulating urine output. They do this by adjusting excretion or absorption of sodium and water. And that's it for blood pressure control. Let's check your knowledge and see what we've learned today. First, what are the two major hemodynamic parameters that contribute to blood pressure regulation? There are two major factors involved in BP regulation, systemic vascular resistance and cardiac output. These work together to change or maintain mean arterial pressure under conditions like hemorrhage or disease states like heart failure. What is systemic vascular resistance and how is it regulated? Systemic vascular resistance, SVR, is the resistance to blood flow from all the peripheral vessels, and it's regulated by vasoconstriction or vasodilation of the muscle in the arterioles. This, in turn, is controlled by the nervous system and circulating humeral factors. Next, what is cardiac output and how is it controlled? Cardiac output is determined by the heart rate and the stroke volume. It's regulated by cardiac contractility, the sympathetic nervous system, humoral factors, blood volume, and blood pressure. And last, can you explain how the autonomic nervous system and the renal and cardiovascular systems integrate to regulate blood pressure? The autonomic nervous system is responsible for the short-term control of blood pressure, whereas the kidneys are responsible for the long-term control. The autonomic system responds to stretch of arteries and sends signals to alter heart rate, cardiac output, and systemic vascular resistance. The kidneys respond to changes in volume and respond by regulating salt and water retention or excretion. And we're done. Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's think back to your patient Janine from the beginning of this episode. Janine, a 72-year-old woman with hypertension, is concerned about a one-time elevated blood pressure reading after doing some hefty lifting. She wonders, is this normal? You reassure Janine that the body is designed to respond to changes in position, activity, and hydration by changing the blood pressure to meet the body's needs. These minute-to-minute -minute changes are normal and expected, and not to be worried about. The goal of treating high blood pressure is to get the average resting blood pressure to the target of 120 over 80, but a one-time higher reading is likely just the body responding to neural inputs. You encourage her to keep taking her medications, stay active, and follow a low-sodium diet. And that's our show. If you liked this episode, send us a comment or give us a thumbs up. Until next time! <laughs>